It's Thursday, October 14th, and you've got Oz in your ears. Oh, yes, on the waves, speed of light all over the world, and really all over the world now, Dave. Dave Osmond, my co-host. I'm Peter Riggin, your host of Radio Free Oz. You're up on RadioFreeOz.com. Notice that there's people from all over the world listening now. We've got a healthy contingent, not only in the United States and Canada, but in Great Britain, in the Russian Republic, uh, South Korea, etc. I mean, we're oh, slowly but us. surely getting out there. They need us. Yeah. They need us in South Korea and, yeah. and the Russian Republic. They need us. They oh, need yeah. Radio Free Oz. My gosh. Yeah, it, it's... Uh, um, the the hits are improving on uh, our Facebook site by quite a bit. I yeah. saw in a report that came through today. Well, that, I'm having a problem with Facebook. Yeah, what's right, your so problem? So I go with up Facebook? to my personal, and it won't let me up. It says somebody's been screwing around with your site. Uh-oh. So to make sure it's you, would you please go through this process? Sure, fine. So the process is identifying the pictures of your friends. The problem is I took a lot of people on as friends. You know, I thought that was a good idea, but I don't know most of them. So up comes this picture of this this person doing something, you know, in some kitchen with their kids. And I've got to see if it's one of five other names I don't recognize. So I can't get, get into my own site. You I've mean they f- just gave you one picture out of oh, a no. thousand people? No, on your then site? five or six of them. I didn't know who any of them were. Oh my and so of gosh. course I can't get into my own site to tell people about like the fact that the Firesign Theater's going to be in LA, you know, on the, tw- what is it? The 17, 18, 19, <laughs> 20, 21, 22 at right. Barnesville. So you're going to have to do it for me or something like that. Well, well, I'm going to do that as soon as I get home today and uh, pick uh, pick up the Facebook. I, I hope nobody's been screwing around with my site. I don't know who's been screwing with my uh, site. I'd sure like to find out. Yeah, the thing is about if you, um, you know, well, it's a, is, is it a philosophical or industrial problem? It's something we have to face, which is do you friend, to use that verb, do you friend someone you don't know? My rule is, unless I know somebody who's recommended that friend to me, I don't. Uh, and even if I don't know them, if it's like 13 or 14 people I know, then I I usually will do that. However, if it's a pretty girl whom I don't know, never. And if it's a, a celebrity... That I have no reason to know, you know, then I don't, I don't friend well, them either. I have a different philosophy, which yeah. is I figured, okay, I'm taking some sort of a chance by, by being fairly open in this filter. Yeah. In fact, I've had no trouble with the friends and I get all of their posts and I can, you know, enjoy them or not. That's not the issue. I wanted to be able to increase the base that I could reach out to. Sure. And now I'm being tested to recognize the personal pictures of people I don't know. So I'm just going to have to somehow find out what this is all about. Maybe I should call Aaron Sorkin. He wrote the movie. Wow, maybe man. he can help. Me. That I is a that, well. That's more like that's more like waiting for Godot. It is than than, the, than, uh, than Aaron Sorkin's movie. Yeah. Gee whiz, yeah. You can't get in because you can't identify your. I'm waiting here. What? I'm waiting for a friend I recognize. Yeah, okay. I'm waiting, waiting to ask for five people that I know. Yeah, yeah. The, the, I could be waiting for a long, long time. From the Washington Post, when Senate candidate Christine O'Donnell, she's the one who, I am not a witch, appeared on Sean Hannity's Fox News program, he read her some advice from another Fox commentator, Sarah Palin. Palin, urging the Delaware Republican to speak through Fox News, has said on Twitter that she should be spending her time with voters back home versus appeasing national media seeking your destruction. 
She is absolutely right, said O'Donnell, although she has held almost no public events since that television appearance last month. In the same period, her Democratic opponent, Chris Coons, appeared on MSNBC, where host Chris Matthews asked him about the inexperienced O'Donnell. Does it bother you personally that someone like her with that background should run for public office? Coons said no, but the leading question hung in the air. The increasing polarization of cable news is transforming and in some ways shrinking the electoral landscape. What has emerged is a form of narrow casting, allowing candidates a welcoming platform that helps them avoid hostile press questioning and, in some cases, minimizing the slog and the slip-ups of retail campaigning. There's no question it's contributing to the splintering of the political system and the means by which people get their information about that system, said Robert Thompson, who runs the Blear Center for Television and Public Culture at Syracuse University. If there's no standard baseline of fact and reporting... Where can the conversation go? Each party's message is amplified by former office holders and strategists who sign exclusive agreements with the cable networks as soon as they leave the public payroll. And their celebrity, magnified by their constant screen presence, gives them more influence than most members of Congress. Yeah, we're being ruled by the media, and the media is ruled by the right wing. On any given night, a parade of Democratic lawmakers and candidates appears on MSNBC, while Republicans flock to Fox, including some such as O'Donnell, Michelle Bachman, and Sharon Angle, who grant few interviews elsewhere. CNN has a more balanced guest lineup and no openly partisan shows, but its primetime ratings have declined substantially. So... Don't yell and scream and be unfair. Don't twist the facts. Don't basically become a partisan bullhorn and you'll lose your ratings. Angle, who is challenging Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid in Nevada, has said that the benefit of appearing on a friendly press outlet is that she can ask viewers for money. When I said it on Sean Hannity's television show, we made 40000 before we even got out of the studio in New York. This is criminal activity! The White House has clearly chosen sides. President Obama recently called Fox News destructive, renewing an attack that his administration launched against the network last year, while White House spokesman Bill Burton singled out MSNBC hosts Keith Oberman and Rachel Maddow for helping to keep our government honest. That praise followed a swipe that Press Secretary Robert Gibbs took at the professional left, widely seen as aimed at liberal commentators and bloggers. So it goes back and forth on the left, but on the right, it's march step. Put on them hobnailed jackboots and march to Murdoch's tune. The fragmented environment has forced political strategists to make adjustments. It requires the president to work harder to get his message out, said Dan Pfeiffer, Obama's communications director, including seeking out unconventional venues where his sheer presence will generate buzz. That explains why Obama showed up on The View, was the first sitting president to appear with Jay Leno and David Letterman, and has scheduled town halls with MTV, CMT, and BET. In a push for his health care measure, he was the first president to blanket all five Sunday talk shows, which feature more sober formats than primetime cable. Ari Fleischer, former spokesman for President George W. Bush, said that cable shows are influential with partisan audience, but that if you're only talking to like-minded people, it's a bad reflection on that candidate. When Obama submitted to a lengthy grilling by Fox's Bill O'Reilly during the 2008 campaign, Fleischer said he knew it sent a signal to non-O'Reilly viewers that Barack Obama has confidence in his ideas. Four in ten Republicans say they regularly watch Fox News. 71% of all Republicans say that they're Tea Partiers. 40% of all Republicans watch Fox News. 
Oh, my. Compared with 21% of Democrats, according to a recent Pew Research Center survey, that even 21% of the Democrats watch Fox is, is shocking. Of course, a lot of these are right-wing Democrats. Democrats make up 53% of MF's NBC's audience and Republicans just 6%. I like MSNBC, but it begins to bore me to death because it's the same thing over and over again. Remember, they're on commercial television. There's only so much they can say. There's only so much that they can confront. And there's whole parts of the system, including the communications monopoly from which they are being paid, that they cannot deeply question. Fox News, which has nearly tripled the audience of MSNBC, has provided a megaphone for three possible 2012 GOP presidential candidates on their payroll, Palin, Mike Huckabee, and Newt Gingrich. Two of its most prominent commentators, Carl Rove and Dick Morris, are actually raising money for Republican candidates. I'm helping raising 50 million, 3 million of which we've already spent on behalf of Sharon Angel in Nevada, Rove, a Bush White House official and fascist, recently told viewers. Hannity has also raised money for GOP candidates. Fox executives declined to be interviewed. I don't blame them. Every time I go on, I'm identified as a Democrat, Begalia said. I'm not paid to be a neutral, but I'm paid to be truthful. As long as that's fully disclosed, the audience is not going to be shocked that a Democratic strategist is up there trying to help Democrats. Maddow boasted on a show recently, a real live Republican candidate for office is going to be a guest on this show. But she got into a lengthy and awkward argument with Art Robinson, a House candidate in Oregon, who kept accusing her of trying to throw mud at me, even as she read words he had written in the past. In May, after Maddow politely but doggedly pressed Senate candidate Rand Paul about his views on the 1964 Civil Rights Act, the Kentucky Republican vowed not to go back. That's real courage. Maddow's profile is such that some GOP candidates have attacked her in fundraising letters and used her as a target in their campaign advertising. Some cable personalities have gone well beyond the role of, of mere interviewers in stoking political passions. CNBC correspondent Rick Santelli's rant against Obama's financial policies last year helped spark the fledgling movement that came to be known as the Tea Party. Fox's Glenn Beck gave the movement a jumpstart with his so-called 9-12 rallies last fall, which were heavily covered by his network, and he drew a huge crowd in August to the Lincoln Memorial, with Palin's help, for a religious-themed event. Yeah, there's a lot of covert religion on Fox now. I'm not opposed to religion. I think I am, in a way, a religious character myself. But I keep it to myself. I keep it private. I don't put it out on commercial networks. You know, there is this thing called <laughs> crossing the line. And I think if you cross the line, you're going to find most of those Fox bozos living there. This looks like a microcosm of America to me. From Talking Points Memo, Chinese Nobel Peace Laureate Liu Jiabo has tearfully dedicated his award to victims of the 1989 Tiananmen Square crackdown, activists said, as his wife was held under house arrest on Monday. Don't you just love those Chinese? They don't care about spinning their public relations. All they want is total control of the people. This award is for the lost souls of June 4th, the U.S.-based group 
human rights in China, quoted Liu Jiabo as telling his wife, Liu Jia, referring to the bloody June 4th, 1989 crackdown on democracy protests at the vast Beijing Square. I've been there, by the way. It is huge. You can't imagine the scale of Beijing. Everything is at least twice as large as you would expect it. I didn't go into Mao's tomb because I don't visit the resting place of mass murderers. I happened to be in in Tiananmen Square when it was almost just empty. And there would be occasionally a, a an army guard standing there, not with a rifle, but a fire extinguisher. I learned later that was to put out people who set themselves on fire in protest. It's a great country. The 54-year-old writer, this is Yobo, who was jailed for 11 years in December after authoring a bold petition calling for democratic reforms, was awarded the prize by the Oslo-based committee Friday, sparking a furious reaction from Beijing. Leaders around the world, including U.S. President Barack Obama, last year's Nobel Peace Prize winner, lauded the 2010 winner and called on the Chinese government to release him immediately. Tibet's exiled spiritual leader, the Dalai Lama, who won the Nobel Peace Prize in 1989, also on Monday criticized China's irate response. The Dalai Lama told Kyoto News during a stopover at Tokyo's Narita Airport that the Chinese government does not appreciate different opinions at all. Yeah, Dalai, that's putting it lightly. He also said building an open and transparent society is the only way to save all people of China, but that some hardliners inside the leadership were stuck in an old way of thinking. Via her Twitter account, Liu Jia said she had been placed under house arrest at her Beijing home both before and after traveling to the prison in northeastern China where her husband is being held to inform him of his prize. Brothers, she said, I have returned home. On the 8th of October, they placed me under house arrest. I don't know when I will be able to see anyone, said the Sunday night Twitter. My mobile phone has been broken and I cannot call or receive calls. I saw Jiabo and told him on the 9th at the prison that he won the prize. I will let you know more later. Everyone, please help me retweet. Thanks, she said. Yeah, don't retreat on this one. Retweet. Liu Jiabo's wife was taken to the prison under police guard, his lawyer said at the weekend. At least two dozen police, plainclothes officers, and other security personnel were soon deployed Monday at the compound where Liu Jia lives, interrogating returning residents and preventing journalists from entering. It's a police state, buddy. Next time you go out and buy one of them fine Chinese trinkets or some of them fine hijack TV programs or games or whatever you're buying, just think about Liu Jia and think of Jia Bo up there in prison for 11 years for just calling for human rights. Calls to her mobile phone were met with a recording saying it was out of service. Liu Jiabo is the first Chinese citizen to win the Peace Prize issued by the Oslo-based Nobel Committee, and China immediately lashed out at the award, calling it blasphemy and labeling Liu a criminal. These people are, I just can't stand them. China has summoned the Norwegian ambassador to warn him that it would damage relations and on Monday canceled a scheduled Wednesday meeting between a Norwegian fisheries minister and a Chinese vice minister. Well, let me tell you, China, you know, the fish starts to rot both the head and the tail in your country, and you're going to get caught in the middle. China's censors have mounted an effort to prevent news of the awards circulating on the internet in China, and searches on the subject remain blocked Monday. And what a great country. 
Uh, Liu, a former university professor, helped negotiate the safe exit from Tiananmen Square of thousands of student demonstrators before military tanks crushed the six weeks of peaceful protests in the heart of Beijing. He has spent much of the intervening period in jail, under house arrest or other restrictions, but has continued to seek the release of those jailed due to the protests. He was last jailed following the publication of Charter 08, a manifesto calling for democracy and human rights that was signed by hundreds of Chinese activists and then thousands more after it was circulated online. Liu dedicated his award to Tiananmen victims to honor their nonviolent spirit in giving their lives for peace, freedom, and democracy. Liu Jia was quoted as saying by human rights in China. She said her husband was moved to tears as he discussed the subject, according to the group. During the one-hour meeting, Liu asked his wife to represent him at the Nobel Award ceremony in December. The Hong Kong-based Information Center for Human Rights and Democracy said in a statement, it was not immediately clear if Chinese authorities would allow her to attend. If they don't allow her to attend the Nobel ceremony for her husband's Peace Prize, I think we ought to do a full boycott China Day. Maybe a full boycott China Month. That doesn't mean we won't be reading Tang Chinese poetry on Oz, because that's like, you know, 1,500 years ago. I'm talking about the oppression right now. This rather startling piece of medical news from Talking Points Memo. U.S. doctors have begun treating the first patient with embryonic stem cells as part of the first human study of the controversial treatment authorized by the government, the Geron Corporation said this week. The patient was enrolled at the Shepherd Center Spinal Cord and Brain Injury Rehabilitation Hospital in Atlanta, Georgia, where Geron began clinical tests of their GRNOPC1 human embryonic stem cells in treating patients with devastating spinal cord injuries. The trial comes just 11 years after Geron began working with human embryonic stem cells in 1999 when many predicted that it would be a number of decades before a cell therapy would be approved for human clinical trials, said Thomas Okarma, Geron's president and CEO. Initiating the GRN-OPC1 clinical trial is a milestone for the field of human embryonic stem cell-based therapies, Okarma said. Geron got clearance in January last year to conduct human trials with the embryonic stem cells, which are highly versatile, primitive cells capable of developing into any tissue. Preclinical studies have shown the GRN-OPC1 significantly improved locomotor activity of animals with spinal cord injuries when injected seven days after the injury. Participants in the study must be newly injured and receive GRN-OPC1 between 7 and 14 days of sustaining their injury. David Apple, Shepherd Center's medical director, said the clinical trial was a key step forward in attempts to find a cure for paralysis in people with spinal cord injury. The ultimate goal is to inject GRN-OPC1 cells into the spines of paralyzed human volunteers in the hope that this will prompt damaged nerve cells to regrow, enabling the patients to eventually recover feeling and movement. Now, this is marvelous. It also brings to mind all of those people in Congress and the people who supported them on the outside who opposed embryonic cell research because the embryos came from either rejected fetuses or, you know, or for fetuses that were uh, being frozen for further, for further uh, um, 
fertilization, whatever. They said, basically, you were destroying human life by making this available. I tell you, this is giving life. This is going to give motility, movement, a new life to people. And that's worth every bit of the sacrifice. Now, a while ago, we did a wonderful piece together, David, called More Salt on Your Damp Dog, which I revived in, in a recent show about what, that, that fast food only tastes the way it does because of salt. Otherwise, it tastes like damp dog damp hair. Damp dog hair. Yeah, right. Okay. Well, this is new. This is, this is all part of our fast look at fast food. Okay. Looking almost, from the Daily Beast, by the way, looking mm -hmm. almost as fresh as the day it was bought, this McDonald's Happy Meal is, in fact, a staggering six months old. Photographed every day for the past half year by a Manhattan artist, Sally Davies, the kid's meal of fries and a burger is without a hint of mold or decay. No, six, yeah. six months? Entitled The Happy Meal Project, Mrs. Davies, 54, has charted the seemingly indestructible fast food meal's uh, progress as it refuses to yield to the forces of nature. Sitting on a shelf in her apartment, Sally has watched the Happy Meal with increasing shock, and even her dogs have resisted the urge to try and steal a free, tasty snack. Dogs don't even want it. I bought the meal on April 10th of this year and brought it home with the express intention of leaving it out to see how it fared, she said. I chose McDonald's because it was nearest to my house, but the project could have been about any of the other myriad of fast food joints in New York. Maybe not. McDonald's maybe may, not. Maybe, maybe McDonald's yeah, yeah, has yeah. something special here. The first thing that struck me on day two of the experiment was that it no longer emitted any smell. So uh -huh. it goes odorless uh -huh. in a day. Well, that's because the odor is all provided with a shot of chemical, right? Just Absolutely. before it hits the hits the table, you know. Which then evaporated yeah. into our house. Yeah, yeah. Expecting the food to begin molding after a few days, Mrs. Davies' surprise turned to shock as the fries and burger still had not shown any sign of decomposition after two weeks. And there are pictures of this on the Daily Beast, and except for a tiny, I mean an almost minuscule amount of shivering of the, slivering and shivering of the bun and, uh, and of the meat, there's no change. Basically, you can't tell one day from another. Day one, day 180, same thing. Mm. It was then that I realized, said Miss Davies, that something strange might be going on with this food that I had bought, she said. The fries shriveled slightly, as did the burger patty, but the overall appearance of the food did not change as the weeks turned to months. And now, at six months old, the food is plastic to the touch and has an acrylic sheen to it. The only change that I can see is that it has become hard as a rock. <laughs> no, no. Yes, yes, yes. Now imagine, oh. imagine what it does in your intestines. Hell, because, because I some, mean, my burger is undead. <laughs> why hasn't even the bun become speckled with mold? Oh, it's no. odd. When asked if their food was not biodegradable, it <laughs> appears that their food is not biodegradable, David. McDonald's spokeswoman, Danya Proud, said, this is nothing more than an outlandish claim and is completely false. Oh, that, that's what thanks, they got. Yolanda. We'll be, we'll, be, we'll be back to you in a minute. But, of course, McDonald's yeah. is now looking at, an, I think this is major. I mean, basically, because other people are going to leave their happy meals out to find yep. out just how happy they remain. And if indeed they all remain the same, lose their smell after a day, have an acrylic sheen and become hard as a rock and becomes untasty even to the hungriest dogs, they got a real problem on their hands. Here. Yeah, no kidding. Attack of the undead Happy Meals. 
<laughs> it's just it's just too much to believe. And and yet, <clears throat> you think about it, McDonald's is based almost entirely on chemical research. Well, if there's enough salt, for okay. one thing, and sugar, it will preserve it. That's right? true. Honey preserves the the mummies, right? So I'm pretty sure salt it's and salt sugar. and sugar content because there's tons of it. salt and sugar in the bun. People don't realize how much sugar yeah, there yeah, is. Yeah, well, yeah, so it's course. salt and sugar. The acrylic sheen. Well, <laughs> maybe the, something we haven't dealt with. That's yet. the sugar sort of getting that acrylic <laughs> sheen. It gets when it doesn't get old. It just gets hard, <laughs> like me. <laughs> oh, Pete. This is an op-ed piece written by Fang Li Zhi in the HuffPost. Fang Li Zhi is a dissident physicist widely regarded as China's Sakharov and a mentor to the student protesters at Tiananmen Square in 1989, now lives in exile in the United States where he teaches at the University of Arizona. Before he was expelled from China, he spent over a year in protective custody in the U.S. Embassy in Beijing where he had fled after the Tiananmen crackdown. Here he speaks. I heartily applaud the Nobel Committee for awarding its peace prize to the imprisoned Liu Xiaobo for his long and nonviolent struggle for fundamental human rights in China. In doing so, the committee has challenged the West to re-examine a dangerous notion that has become prevalent since the 1989 Tiananmen massacre, that economic development will inevitably lead the, to democracy in China. Increasingly, throughout the late 1990s and into the new century, this argument gained sway. Some no doubt believed it. Others perhaps found it convenient for their business interests. Many trusted the top Chinese policymakers who sought to persuade the outside world that if they continued pouring in their investments without an embarrassing linkage to human rights principles, all would get better at China's own pace. More than 20 years have passed since Tiananmen. China has officially become the world's second largest economy. Yet the hardly radical Liu Xiaobo and thousands of others rot in jail for merely demanding basic rights enshrined by the UN and taken for granted by all Western investors in their own countries. Apparently, human rights have not inevitably improved despite a soaring economy. Li Xiaobo's own experience over the last 20 years ought to be enough evidence on its own to finally demolish any idea that democracy will automatically emerge as a result of growing prosperity. I knew Mr. Liu in the 1980s when he was an outspoken young man. He took part in 1989 in the peaceful protests at Tiananmen Square and was sentenced to two years in prison for his efforts. From then until 1999, he was in and out of labor camps, prisons, detention centers, and house arrest. In 2008, he initiated the Charter 08 petition, calling for China to comply with the United Nations Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Consequently, he was again arrested, this time sentenced to a particularly harsh 11 years in prison for inciting subversion of state power, even though China is a signatory of the UN Declaration. According to human rights organizations that monitor the situation in China, there are about 1,400 political, religious, and conscience prisoners spread around in prisons or labor camps across China. Their crimes have included membership in underground political or religious groups, independent trade unions, and non-governmental organizations. Or they've been arrested for participating in strikes or demonstrations and have publicly expressed dissenting political opinions. This undeniable reality ought to be a wake-up call to anyone who naively believes the autocratic rulers of China will alter their disregard of human rights just because the country is richer. Regardless of how widely China's leaders have opened its market to the outside world, they have not retreated even half a step from their repressive political creed.
The international community should be especially concerned over China's breach of international agreements to which it is a signatory. Besides the UN Declaration of Human Rights, China also signed the UN Convention Against Torture in 1988. Yet torture, maltreatment, and psychiatric manipulation are extensively used in detention and prison camps in China. The bastards. This includes beatings, the use of leg shackles and or handcuffs for prolonged periods, extended solitary confinement, severely inadequate food, extreme exposure to cold and heat, and denial of medical treatment. As the power of the regime grows with prosperity, the Communist Party feels confident in its immunity as it violates the strictures of its own constitution. Article 35 of China's constitution, for example, says that citizens of the People's Republic of China enjoy freedom of speech, of assembly, of association, of procession, and of demonstration. Yet, can anyone doubt governments crack down on these rights, not to speak of regularly blocking the internet, including denying access to a whole swath of China after the incidents between Han and Uyghurs in Western China. Censors can easily locate emails and their authors using selective words like Liu Jiabo and filter them out. As the unfortunate history of Japan during the first half of the 20th century illustrates, a power that marries economic strength and human rights violations is a threat to peace. Thankfully, the Courageous Nobel Committee has exposed this link once again in the case of a prospering China. The committee is absolutely right to make a connection between respect for human rights and world peace. As Alfred Nobel so well understood, human rights are the prerequisite for the fraternity between nations.
From the New York Times, with his party facing losses in next month's election, President Obama pressed his argument that the opposition is trying to steal the election with secret special interest money, possibly including money from foreign companies. In speeches and in a new television advertisement, Mr. Obama and the Democrats escalated their efforts to present the Republicans as captive to moneyed interests. But Republicans and their allies fired back, dismissing the assertions as desperate last-minute allegations with no evidence to back them up. You can't let it happen, Mr. Obama told thousands of supporters gathered at a school park in a predominantly African-American working-class neighborhood in northern Philadelphia. Don't let them hijack your agenda. The American people deserve to know who's trying to sway their elections. And you can't stand by and let the special interests drown out the voices of the American people. But that's just, of course, what the Supreme Court has made possible. Mr. Obama has increasingly turned to the issue of campaign finance to motivate his supporters as the elections grow near and the polls remain bad for Democrats. With his party outmatched in advertising sponsored by groups that do not have to disclose their donors under a Supreme Court decision issued earlier this year, Mr. Obama suggested that the sponsors of campaign advertising have sinister motivations. You don't know, he said. It could be the oil industry. It could be the insurance industry. It could even be foreign-owned corporations. You don't know because they don't have to disclose. Now, that's not just a threat to Democrats. That's a threat to our democracy. Still, in saying it could be foreign corporations, Mr. Obama softened his language from last week after the original assertion was disputed and was more equivocal than a new Democratic National Committee advertisement that asserts the involvement of overseas money more directly. The advertisement attacks the U.S. Chamber of Commerce and Karl Rove and Ed Gillespie, two former aides to President George W. Bush, who have helped groups supporting Republican candidates. Oh, my, my. You think that Karl Rove and Ed Gillespie and the U.S. Chamber of Commerce would take money from foreign corporations to influence the American election? Oh, why, that's just out of the question. Not. The commercial calls Mr. Rove and Mr. Gillespie Bush cronies, indeed, and says the chamber shills for big business, indeed, then shows a woman having her purse stolen by a mugger in a parking garage. They're stealing our democracy, spending millions from secret donors to elect Republicans to do their bidding in Congress, the narrator intones. It appears they've even taken secret foreign money to influence our elections. David Axelrod, the president's senior advisor, was asked by Bob Scheifer on Face the Nation on CBS if he had any evidence that the chamber was using secret foreign funds to influence the election. Said Axelrod, well... Do you have any evidence that it's not? Mr. Axelrod replied, The fact is that the chamber has asserted that, but they won't release any information about where their campaign money is coming from, and that's at the core of the problem here. 
Mr. Rove and Mr. Gillespie shot back at the Democrats in separate Sunday television appearances. Have these people no shame, Mr. Rove said on Fox News Sunday, as if Karl Rove would recognize shame if it sat on his face? Does the President of the United States have such little regard for the office that he, that he holds, that he goes out there and, and makes these kinds of baseless charges against his political enemies? Hey, I could use him. Now, this is just beyond the pale. How dare the president do this? Oh, Carl. Oh, man. There is a very special place waiting for you in the afterlife. <laughs> the president's rally here was the second of four scheduled before the November 2 elections as he attempts to reignite the sort of excitement that lifted him during the 2008 presidential campaign. Citing a city official, the Democratic committee said 18,500 people turned out on a warm, cloudless day to hear the president, Vice President Joe Biden, and a host of Pennsylvania Democrats and The Roots, a hip-hop band. I hope they all go out and vote, including the band. Hey, all of you Ozaneers on Twitter. Uh, retweeting has its rewards, and we are going to give you an opportunity to win some cool stuff simply by helping us spread the word about Radio Free Oz on Twitter. If you aren't following us yet, go up to www.twitter.com slash Network and follow the show. See you on the inside. From the Gray Lady. Worries over internet privacy have spurred lawsuits, conspiracy theories, and consumer anxiety as marketeers and others invent new ways to track computer users on the internet. But the alarmists have not seen anything yet. In the next few years, a powerful new suite of capabilities will become available to web developers that could give marketeers and advertisers access to many more details about computer users' online activities. Nearly everyone who uses the Internet will face the privacy risks that come with these capabilities, which are an integral part of the web language that will soon power the Internet, HTML5. The new web code, the fifth version of Hypertext Markup language used to create web pages, is already in limited use and it promises to usher in a new era of internet browsing within the next few years. It will make it easier for users to view multimedia content without downloading extra software, check email offline, or find a favorite restaurant or shop on a smartphone. Many users will clearly welcome the additional features that come with a new web language. It's going to change everything about the Internet and the way we use it today, says James Cox, 27, a freelance consultant and software developer at Smoke Clouds, a New York City startup company. It's not just HTML5, it's the new web. Yeah, but what about privacy there, Jimmy? Ever heard about it? Or do you live in this entirely transparent bubble and you don't care what anybody knows about you because there's nothing really that interesting to know? But others, while also enthusiastic about the changes, are more cautious. Most web users are familiar with so-called cookies, which uh, make it possible, for example, to log on to websites without having to retype usernames and passwords or to keep track of items placed in virtual shopping carts before they are bought. The new web language and its additional features present more tracking opportunities because the technology uses a process in which large amounts of data can be collected and stored on the user's hard drive while online. Because of that process, advertisers and others could, experts say, see weeks or even months of personal data. That can include a user's location, time zone, photographs, text from blogs, shopping cart contents, emails, and a history of the web pages visited. The new web language gives trackers one more bucket to put tracking information into, said Hakam Wiomli, the chief technology officer at Opera, 
uh, browser company. Or as Pam Dixon, the executive director of the World Privacy Forum in California says, HTML5 opens Pandora's box of tracking in the internet. Representatives from the World Wide Web Consortium say they are taking questions about user privacy very seriously. The organization which oversees the specifications developers turn to for the new web language will hold a two-day workshop on internet technologies and privacy. We'll just see how far they go. Ian Jacobs, head of communications at the consortium, said the development process for the new web language would include a public review. There is accountability, he said. This is not a secret cabal for global adoption of these core standards then what is it? The additional capabilities provided by the new web language are already being put to use by a California programmer who has created what, at first glance, could be a major new threat to online privacy. Sammy Kamkar, California programmer, best known in some circles for creating a virus called the Sammy Worm, which took down MySpace.com in 2005, has created a cookie that is not easily deleted, even by experts, something he calls an ever cookie. Some observers call it a super cookie because it stores information in at least 10 places on a computer, far more than usually found. It combines traditional tracking tools with new features that come with the new web language. In creating the cookie, Mr. Kamkar has drawn comments from bloggers across the internet whose descriptions of it range from extremely persistent to horrific. Mr. Kamkar, however, said he did not create it to violate anyone's privacy. He said he was curious about how advertisers tracked him on the internet. After cataloging what he found on his computer, he made the EverCookie to demonstrate just how thoroughly people's computers could be infiltrated by the latest internet technology. I think it's okay for them to say we want to provide better service, Mr. Comcar said, of advertisers who place tracking cookies on his computer. However, I should also be able to opt out because it's my computer. Mr. Comcar, whose 2005 virus circumvented browser safeguards and added more than a million friends to his MySpace page in less than 20 hours, said he had no plans to profit from the EverCookie and did not intend it to sell it to advertisers. This cookie thing's really serious. You know, if you, if you don't allow cookies, there's all sorts of apps you can't use. There's all sorts of things you can't do on your computer. But once you allow cookies, then you open your computer to this type of data mining. So the question is, if there's all these clever people out there writing all these super programs, why aren't there clever people out there writing super protection programs so that we can have the convenience of cookies and not run the risks of being spied on and used? Well, um... Shall we move on to the weekly cereal? Oh, people are oh, waiting, sure. man. Oh, sure. This no, kills also. This is a serial killer. It's more exciting than the Big Brother, you know? Okay, stand by. <laughs> Here it comes. Portabakey International Pictures presents The Fuse of Doom, a new Frank Acme serial thriller, part two, The Curse of Cobra Valley. As we departed our last mesmerizing episode, the mysterious electrician had struck at the overtly furnished home of Jonas Acme, industrial giant, paralyzing Dr. Archetype and stealing his most valuable invention, the Zeppelin Tube, a great tool for good or evil. We'd rejoin our story as publisher Charles Foster Dudley says... Archetype, 
Archive. Look at that glassy stare in his mouth. This is terrible, Dudley. My my tube's been purloined. See here, Acme. Here, I don't see. No, over squash. there. Oh, over there. there, the professor's got a fuse in his mouth. Ooh. A blown fuse. Oh, I, I parked the uh, I parked the plane on the boat, Dad. Is the party still going on? Oh, I, what what happened to Doctor Archetype? Frank. Uh, I don't think you've ever met my old friend and newspaper magnate, Charles Dudley. Oh, it's an honor, sir. No, it's a pity. Oh, that too. No, it's a pity we have to meet at a time like this, Frank. Oh, sorry. Time is of the essence, Dud. Don't ever forget that. You too, Frank. All right. Okay, uh, I forgot it because I forgot to take my ginkgo martini here all around, nice and dry. Not too dry, and there's no time left like the present. We've got to get archetype functioning again. We've got to find the two. I say, Frank, do you happen to have a spare fuse? Well, well, sir, a pilot like me needs one of everything. Sure, here. It may be too late. Wait, 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 wait. wait. He's coming around. He's coming around again. Professor, professor, speak to me. Tell me, the fiend who stole the Zeppelin tube, who was he? What does he want? Uh, Sir, excuse me, but he he can't act with that fuse in his mouth. Superb thinking, son. Thank you. Here, I'll twist it out, like I did last summer. Now, I remember the astonishing face. It was, it was, it turned out, you'll never believe this. He's run out of juice, Dad. Never my problem. We've got to think of something. What? Let's put our heads together. Right. Oh, oh ow. Ow. I've got it. I've, it worked. Painful sound effect. I, I'm going to call my friend Inspector Fang of Oriental Intelligence. What are you going to call him? Jim. No, you mustn't. Why not? Well, I never thought of it that way, Dud. Mm, neither did I. But you're right, of course. Now, I don't know what you guys Damn. are talking about. You fight it out between yourselves. Okay, I, I'm, oh. I'm going to wheel Dr. Oh. Archetype into the solarium and try to rewire him, Dad. Okay, Dud. Well, Only Archetype knows who fried his wig. Great. We must act surreptitiously, but... With utmost secrecy. I don't know what that means. <laughs> Neither do I, but that's good words. Let's discuss our strategy over a quick Jeroboam ah. of champagne. Nippon Cadet. Hot six. Very good. I'll drink to that. Ah, you'll drink. Oh! oh, you'll drink to anything, you messy old man. You know, looking up at me, I. Don't look up at me. Oh, no, no. I've looked up at me and I get nothing on Google. <laughs> Look at that charming ceiling. It seems to be so close. I don't believe I've ever noticed that fresco before. It's an original fettuccine, so flat, so thin. I should have recognized the fabulous fettuccine perspective. Which was that? Oh, you feel as if your nose is right inside the central figure of the tableau. Ah, his painstaking concern for minute detail is truly oppressive. Every hair. Who is she? Oh, my God, Dudley, the ceiling is moving down on us. I don't think so. It's the floor. It's moving up. Oh, it's just a matter of perspective. We're Stay tuned. Next fire time, same fire station for Care of the Cow Brings Good Fortune. The next overpowering episode of The Fuse of Doom. From NPR. The U.S. Supreme Court opened its new term with Justice Elena Kagan sitting in the junior justice's seat at the far end of the bench. For the first time in its history, a third of the nine-member court is female, and of all of its justices are either Catholic or Jewish. No Protestants allowed. Also, for the first time in 35 years, Justice John Paul Stevens is not there. 35 years on the court. The 90-year-old justice retired in June this summer. He sat for an interview in his chambers during a lengthy and wide-ranging conversation. Stevens said he regrets one vote. 
1976 vote to uphold the death penalty. He also said he remains undecided about whether it would be a good idea to allow TV cameras in the Supreme Court, gently chided the Senate for the way it conducts confirmation hearings, and said he has often changed his mind about issues after reading the briefs and hearing oral arguments. Colleagues, clerks, and consul all describe him as a man of unaffected decency who is unfailingly polite and gracious. So skilled is he at building relationships on the court that other justices have said they would like to bottle his talent. During the interview in his chambers, he chuckled about the notion that he is some sort of great tactician. There's no grand strategy or anything like that. It's just part of the way I think judges should work together on a multi-judge court, he said. One of the things that makes this a nice place to work is the custom of shaking hands before you go on the bench. It's, it's a funny thing that the, the very minor uh, ceremony starts everybody off in a collegial manner, and it's, it just stays right. Unlike many court commentators, Stevens does not attribute political motives to colleagues with whom he disagrees. The wonderful thing about this institution is that we do disagree about very profound things, he said, but every justice accepts the fact that his or her colleagues are doing the best job they can, consistent with their own understanding of the law and the Constitution. That doesn't mean that Stevens and his antagonists on the court have have disdained strong language. In January, when a new conservative majority struck down a 100-year-old ban on corporate spending in candidate elections, Stevens wrote in dissent that the court's decision would cripple the ability of ordinary citizens, Congress, and the states to adopt even limited measures to protect against corporate domination of the electoral process. And that's what we're suffering right now, corporate domination of the electoral process, one of the three legs upon which the fascist stool sits. When Stevens first joined the court, he voted to revive capital punishment, overturning a de facto moratorium imposed by the court four years earlier. I thought at the time, he said, that if the universe of defendants eligible for the death penalty is sufficiently narrow so that you can be confident that the defendant really merits the severe punishment, that the death penalty was appropriate. But over the years, the court constantly expanded the cases eligible for the death penalty so that the underlying premise of my vote has disappeared, in a sense. In short... As moderate conservatives retired and were replaced by more hardline conservative justices, the court changed the rules, he says. Not only is it a larger universe, but the procedures have become more prosecution-friendly. Well, we're going to miss him. A fine man. And, And again, one of those people brought to the court, thought to be a conservative, so to speak, like the Hugo Blacks and the suitors, who turn out to be real constitutional scholars and in the process become true liberals in the best sense, open to the relationship between the Constitution, an extraordinary document, and the, the changing times in which it lives and evolves. Well, Peter, I'm back again today because it's the middle of October, and I mean the comedians' birthdays come thick and fast. Not all these people are comedians. I, they, I, I, I love all these folks because some way they stir the comic soul. Whether so they join the comedy calendar. That's it. Well, the first one is a poet, E.E. E. Cummings, born oh, funny on, man. on the 14th, and as funny a guy as you can uh, ever read a poem by. I, I mean, that some of, yeah, if you're going to get a chuckle out of a poem, E.E. E. Cummings is a good candidate. I saw him read once, and he curled up his mouth and read those lines. Yeah, there's a hell of a good world next door. Let's go. He was a great guy. I can't do that Boston accent, but uh, what a funny, funny writer. Same day, the 14th, uh, today, uh, Harry Anderson. 
Oh. Our friend from Night Court and uh, Dave's World, uh, magician, yeah. actor. I first met him when Proctor and I hired him to open for us in Austin, Texas. And he came out in this big velvet robe, opened it, and there was this sparkles came out and everything. What a, what a lovely man. <laughs> what a lovely, lovely man. And I got to tell you what's happening on the weekend, too, because it'll be best of on Friday. And that day, well, we can celebrate some TV favorites. Uh, the debut of I Love Lucy. Oh, man, that, one of my favorite shows. That was on the 15th of October, back at the, when uh, TV had seasons, right? right? 15th of October, 1951 on I CBS. Probably, I probably saw the show. She made me laugh. You know, I've been thinking about Lucy and about the life we live today. And the thing that was so good about that show, it was so unpretentious. It wasn't about living better. It wasn't about objects that you had. It was strictly about kind of getting by as a married couple and being wacky. But there was, it was not at all uh, the world of materialism that that we live in today. Even when when supermodels go around picking up fibers in these forensic shows, they're (laughs) totally dressed and everywhere they go is stylish. Nothing stylish about Lucy, although a a former um, model. One of the most Most beautiful. beautiful. Oh, my God. Yes, I have a picture of her when she was in her... uh, Goldwyn girl phase, oh, and she's as beautiful as any Hollywood star, no question about but it. But like Sandra Bullock, she learned to take a fall and became famous. That's right. Yep. That's right. On, uh, let's see, Saturday, well, Oscar Wilde. How, oh. how bigger a comedian can you get? Uh, playwright uh, and, uh, well, I mean, the importance of so being, being earnest. earnest. One of the funniest plays in the world. There you go. And he wrote it in a very short period of time. I Someone think. says he's an orphan and he says to him, losing one parent is a tragedy. Losing two parents is sheer carelessness. <laughs> yes. And on the same day, uh, that's uh, the 16th, uh, uh, was a, a released a, a, a number one comedy record. It doesn't happen very often. This was Disco Duck by Rick Dees and his cast of idiots. Yeah. The comedy cut hit number one in 1976. And it made his career. There you go. Absolutely. <laughs> that was it. One hit favorite. And on Sunday, uh, three very funny guys. Jerry Colonna. Oh, yeah. If you can remember him. Yep. He was a uh, frequent Bob Hope uh, sidekick. Yeah. Uh, and uh, he, his, his, he was born way back in 1904. So he, Jerry Colonna has been gone a long time. But who could forget what he said when he, his entering line was, Greetings, Gate. For whatever that just means. love it, greetings, Kate and Tom Poston, one of uh, Steve Allen's funny men, really nice guy. Usually played a blank, yes, <laughs> just a blank, yeah. you know. Yeah. And finally, Michael McKean from the Credibility Gap, Spinal Tap, born on the seventeenth in nineteen forty-seven. One of the uh, younger comedians in my comedy calendar this week. Yes, and a good man. And autumn comes and comes and comes. The light darkens and darkens and I feel somehow that with the midterm elections coming you know when the piranhas already beginning to appear in the pet stores in Washington because they love to swim in the bloodbath that we Oz will burn through this night we will be your torch we will be your beacon and now we're going to leave you today with some more lovely ancient although so modern Chinese poetry. Who we got today, Dave? Yes, indeed. Well, we're going to go back to the Tang or forward uh, to into the past to the Tang Dynasty, which was actually from 618 to 907. 
Yeah. They had long-lasting ones. And this is so a, Dao Chen that we did yesterday, definitely pre-Tang. Oh, yeah, definitely pre-Tang. But, but I bet you our Tang boys read him. Hey, Li Po is right Li on Po it. is back. He's ready for this. Drinking alone beneath the moon. Ooh. Two selections. Two drinks. This is a two-drink bar. It's happy hour with Li Po. <laughs> That's right. You got it. A pot of wine among the flowers. I drink alone, no kith or kin near. I raise my cup to invite the moon to join me. It and my shadow make a party of three. Alas, the moon is unconcerned about drinking, and my shadow merely follows me around. Briefly, I cavort with the moon and my shadow. Pleasure must be sought while it is spring. I sing, and the moon goes back and forth. I dance, and my shadow falls at random. While sober, we seek pleasure and fellowship. When drunk, we go each our own way. Then let us pledge a friendship without human ties and meet again at the far end of the Milky Way. Whoa, I feel sometimes like I'm at the far end of the Milky Way, Davo. I'm out really there do. with you, Pete. Oh, it's been beautiful being with you all across the web. Isn't it amazing? And we'll be amazing again when we see you next time on Radio Free Island.